everybody, and welcome to the Games Are Queer podcast. Once again, I am your host, Jeremy Signer, and today we have... Introduce yourself. I am Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. I am a podcaster, a DJ. Um, I uh, am a streamer as well on Twitch, and I will probably, by the end of this podcast, decide on three other things that I want to take on in the creative space, because I don't know how to stop. (laughs) And... For those at home, um, what is your queer identity? So, uh, my pronouns are he, him, and I am bisexual. All right. Awesome. And um, so, why don't we just start out by talking about your podcasting experience? Because you've got a long list of podcasts that you've done. (laughs) Yes. Um, I, uh, yeah, I... I started podcasting probably about a decade ago with a music review show that's now currently on indefinite hiatus, which is a kind way of saying it's done. Um, But the indefinite hiatus part makes me believe that someday in the far future when I'm rich and famous, I'll bring it back. Uh, But but yeah, I've been doing the podcasting a long time and I clearly, as you can see by the list of things that I do, don't know how to stop. Yeah. (laughs) That's not a bad, that's not necessarily a bad thing, honestly. Um, Having a large body of work is always good to have. Um, so why don't you tell us about what your current swath of podcasts are? Like, just briefly, just touch on them. Sure. Um, so uh, I currently speak, I have a speaking sort of role on uh, five different podcasts. Uh, one of them, I'm mostly a producer, and then the other four are, are shows that I uh, actually help host. Um, so the one show that I produce and I occasionally speak on is actually hosted by Evan Ross Katz, um, who is a queer gay man uh, in the fashion and entertainment space. And it's about queer shit and pop culture. Um, and uh, essentially the show is an interview series where we bring guests on to talk to them about their career um, the majority of the guests have been queer, but not all of them have. Um, and uh, as of this recording, we recently did an episode with Tara Reed, which we're really excited to release. Um, kind of came together really fast. Um, and it's kind of just your, not standard, but uh, it's pretty much an interview series. It runs from anywhere to 45 minutes to an hour and a half. Um, and so, yeah, that one I'm just a producer on for the most part. Um the other four shows are all indie podcasts that I am either a producer on, a host, or both. Um, one is called Crash Chords Autographs, which is a bi-weekly interview series, not too dissimilar from this show, actually, where I'll bring a guest on and we'll just kind of have a casual conversation about them and what they do. Um, I've been doing that show for many years. We just released our 160th episode as of when we're recording. Um and then the other three shows are on a podcast network called Certain POV. It's at certainpov.com. And uh, two of them are video game shows, and then one is a TV and movie podcast. Uh, one of the video game shows is called Fun and Games. I host it with my friend Jeff Moonen. And we each episode is either a topic about something in the gaming space, whether it's a genre of game or a certain franchise or just some game like gaming news that we want to discuss a bigger topic about. Um or we'll have a guest on, you know, a community manager from a certain, um, you know, development house or game devs who worked on a certain game, sometimes musicians who are just big in the gaming space. Uh, 
within that feed, I have a sub-series called SideQuests, which is a 5 to 15 minute long mini-sode hosted by a different host talking about a game they love and why they love it. Um, we've had return guests, but it's been a really fun way to pump a ton of positivity into the gaming space since I'm sure as well you know, as also someone who plays games, it can be pretty negative. And uh, I wanted to kind of add some positivity to that space. Um, the final two shows, one of them is called Reignite. It is a mass, as of now, is a Mass Effect retrospective podcast where me as my co-host replay the Mass Effect games as if we were Commander Shepard and discussing the choices we made, the relationships we find, and also the meta level of how those games have aged really well in some places and not so much in other places. Uh, we're currently on Season 3 and Mass Effect 3, and for those wondering, yes, we will do Andromeda. I have actually not played it, so we'll see how that goes. Um, and then the final show is called Screen Snark I host it with my uh, good good friend Rachel Quirky Shank and it is a TV movie podcast where we bring a guest on every episode and talk about a different thing we've watched and uh, you know whatever the most recent thing we've watched is and we'll each take turns and then usually interview the guest in the second half of the show so yeah that is probably the fastest I can get through that and then I also produce and edit a bunch of other shows but those are the main five that you can hear my voice on at some point. Yeah, that, that's that's an impressive resume, honestly. Um, and I wanted to ask, um, now you, your background is actually in um, sound of sorts mm-hmm. because you are um, you're also a DJ. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and um, how did you get involved with producing audio, producing shows, stuff like that? So what attracted you to it as well? Okay. Um, both great questions. So I think to start the easier answer for the second half of what attracted me to it is I've always been a big music nerd since I was a kid. Um, my dad, when I was growing up, would lay on our living room for floor with his headphones plugged into his record player, listening to records. And I, it's just the kind of music environment I grew up around. So, like, I made I've been making mixtape mixtapes since I was a little kid. Uh, for those who don't know, cassette tapes are these things with a it's a tape in it, and you can record onto it for music. It's like a CD, but it's 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 chunkier. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Um, <laughs> the, the, but yeah, I grew up listening to a lot of music and I was a big music nerd. And so I, I was always kind of an audiophile from a young age. Um, I took some audio production courses in college, but it was not something that I thought I would pursue as a career. Um, and then, uh, my love of music and DJing came later. Um, I live in New York and, um, before COVID hit, there was a, uh, bustling burlesque scene here and I had befriended a few folks in burlesque who were producing shows and they needed someone to hit play on the laptop so the performers could perform, you know, super basic stuff. And so I started doing that. And then one of the producers found out that I built custom playlists in my spare time, mixtapes of the modern era, if you will. And she was like, oh, well, would you want to build a playlist based on this theme for this show? And I went, sure. And that kind of started the snowball effect into my DJ career. I would be making custom playlists and then I would do live mixing when I could. Um, and from there I bought my own equipment and then started DJing weddings and emceeing events and hosting burlesque shows. Um, so that kind of all ramped up and all while, all that time while I was doing that and being a music nerd, what led me to podcasting was the now 
on hiatus Crash Chords, which was a music review show, um, I was such a well-known music nerd amongst my friends that my best friend at the time, John, was like, well, we should be doing a podcast about music or reviewing music or something because you're a big music nerd and I'm a big music nerd. And so that's kind of how that started. Um, Crash Chords is a show that ran, I believe, over 200 episodes. And every week we reviewed a new album, breaking it down track by track. And that was kind of my entrance to the podcasting arena. And then from there, I spin off uh, a spinoff, a uh, spun off rather autographs, which uh, was an interview series that started as a musician, like just in interviewing musicians. But as I wanted to grow the show, I started interviewing any artist or pretty much anyone who wanted to talk to me. Um, and uh, that I started selfishly because like I loved folks like Kevin Pollack and Mark Marin and Pete Holmes and, you know, all of the folks who do have done talking head podcasts before I even thought of it. Um, and I was like, I, I can do that. I have a microphone. I like asking people questions. Um, I'm sure it's something that might feel very familiar to you, Jeremy. Uh, and so I just started doing it. No one could stop me because I had the ability to. And that said, I would tell people, if you go to Autographs Now, like you're a brand new listener, first of all, thank you. And second of all, maybe skip the first 50 episodes or so. My audio production wasn't great back then. Um, I've refined it as uh, we've gone on. But to lead into your second question about how I got involved in the production side, it was it's really a boring answer. It's I had to. Um, back when I started podcasting, I couldn't hire a producer. I still can't hire a producer. Um, I'm a terrible boss and I don't pay myself anything. I'm really the worst. Um, but, you know, it, it really is that simple. I had to produce my own shows and so I had to learn and I developed the skills that way. Like I taught myself how to use Audacity. I taught myself how to cut tape and how to edit. I taught myself how to, you know make ads and, you know, set up uh, podcasting pages and RSS feeds, like all of that just came from the necessity to do it myself. And uh, I'm very lucky that this year I was able to market myself and uh, connected with Evan Roth Katz to become the producer of the second season of Shut Up Evan, um, the first production job outside of the shows that I make myself, which is was really exciting to get. Awesome. Now, um, I do want to ask, how hard was it for you to learn how to do the podcast production stuff? Because I know when I started, it was very, um, you know, no one else wanted to do it when I was starting it with someone else. And so I just learned how to, like, I see, like you said, I learned how to use Audacity. I learned how to edit. I learned what I needed to, to put a product out there. So um, just for those out there who are wondering about what it takes to start one of these, what, how hard is it to get into that just to start? And what, what exactly does it take? The answer is really boring um a little bit at least to start it doesn't take anything but starting and what i mean by that is you make this thing um the i think the continuing to do it is the harder part i mean as far as teaching myself how to use audacity and um you know learning how to edit and learning how to you know um no use noise reduction and different programs 
for for reducing noise and clicking and things like that. Like all of that is just a good Google will teach you a lot. Uh, we are very lucky to live in an age where you can type your exact question into Google and nine times out of 10, you will get a helpful answer. Not always, um, but usually. But I think the the production side of learning to do the thing wasn't super hard. I think what got what was harder for me is once things got rolling, sticking with it. And, you know, um, the reason my first show inevitably ended had nothing to do with the workload, although it was a lot. It had to do with the fact that I had two other co-hosts. Uh, three of uh, all three of us went through life changing events. I got married. One of them got a full time job from having being unemployed for years, and the other one moved out further upstate in New York. And like all of those things kind of happening around the same time just made it harder for us to find the time to make the show. And we insisted on only making it by recording in person, you know, back before COVID and when people actually saw each other. Um, and, uh, you know, we decided to end the show instead of trying to do it remote, which is something now I think I regret only because I feel like we could have found a way to make it work over a Zoom call. Um, we might have had to change the format or whatever because we would always listen to the album together, take notes, and then record the episode. And I think we still could have done that somehow. Um, and maybe we will someday. But like that show wind, wound down as I was ramping up other stuff. And like just before COVID hit this year, like back in around January, I'd actually taken a step back from the burlesque scene. You know, no grand like I'm leaving the scene. It was mostly I want to focus on podcasting. I have I'm doing a live panel at PAX East back when conventions still happened. And I was like, I want to focus on my podcasts and grow them, which is what I've done this year by necessity more than anything else. But I had made that con conscious decision to DJ a little less and focus on podcasting more. And I think part of that is because of the difficulty of spinning multiple plates at once. You know, I, I one might argue I'm already doing too much. Uh, but back then, while DJing live events and other things, it made it even harder. I'd say um, to make a very long answer a little shorter. I think the biggest difficulty most people will hit is how to make a show original or unique more than how to do the thing because i think there are just so many tools are so much more accessible to us now in a digital age than they were when i first started making podcasts that i feel like for any anyone to start like that's the joke these days right like it's not do you want to start a band it's hey do you want to start a podcast because i think it's just become so ubiquitous because it, jumping in is so easy you know anyone can do it um I think it's the sticking with it part that's where the difficulty really comes in. Yeah, I definitely feel that because um, the regularity is what um, kind of keeps the momentum going at both on listener's end and on the creator's end. Um, now, I want to switch gears a little bit here. Um, so why don't you tell me a little bit about your your history with games and what, why you're, um, why you, uh, play them basically, you know? Sure. Um, so I've been playing video games since the age of the Atari 2600. Don't do the math. I don't want you to figure out how old I am. Um, God, someone the other day told me that they played Final Fantasy VII when they were five and I instantly turned to, felt like I was going to turn to dust. I was like, God damn it. I'm so old. <laughs> um, but I've been playing games since I was a kid. Um, the the first console that I owned of my very own that was 100% mine was the NES. 
Um, one of the first games I got on it was Mega Man 2 and 3. So the first two games. And of course, it came with Duck Hunt and Super Mario Brothers because every Nintendo did back then. Um, and I played the Nintendo a lot. Um, I also ended up back then getting a Sega Genesis and a Super Nintendo. Super Nintendo was one of the first systems I consciously remember like begging my parents to get me. Like I wanted the new Donkey Kong Country, which had just come out. I wanted Super Mario RPG, which just came out. And I played a ton at a friend's house. Um, and then like I've always been a Nintendo fan. Um, but the first console I really remember... And I told the story on an episode of SideQuests for Fun and Games about Mario 64. But the first console I remember like actively wanting like in a way that was palpable was the N64. I remember seeing the commercials. I remember seeing you know the, the print ads and getting Nintendo Power and seeing this game Mario 64 that looked like everything I wanted from a Mario game. Um, and uh, for those who have listened to that SideQuest, I'm repeating myself a little bit, but for your audience... Um, I got bar mitzvahed, I'm Jewish, I got bar mitzvahed around <clears throat> the time the N64 came out. I didn't remember it was the first time, like a video game system, you couldn't buy it. It wasn't available anymore, anywhere, which is pretty familiar to the time we're living in now and my inability to still get a PS5, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but I remember it just being sold out everywhere and I didn't. my parents didn't pre-order it because they were like, you know, oh, we'll get you one. It'll be your bar mitzvah gift, but don't worry about it, we'll get it. I remember on a chance one weekend, I was like, Dad, can we go to Toys R Us and get and see if they have the N64? I know we called and they said they don't have it, but like, let's go there. Let's see, maybe. And I asked the guy behind the counter because they kept everything in a back room back then. And I mean, they still do in most stores, but like it was it wasn't you couldn't walk the aisles in the same way you can now. And I asked the guy, do you have an N64? I really want one. And we don't have a pre-order. And he's like, let me check. And then he brings one out. And I just remember that car ride home being electric and i must have played mario 64 for like six or seven hours straight that night um like that's the first console in my gaming history and the first game in my gaming history that i remember just actively wanting and the adrenaline rush of finally being able to play it and what that experience was like and as to why i play games i think it's 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 for a lot of reasons a lot of folks got into games right like it's part escapism it's part fascination um it's part intrigue in the technology it's part storytelling um i think it's it's all those things and it depends on the mood i'm in you know i think i play a lot of games now for the story more than the challenge but there are definitely still games that i play for the challenge like your portal or portal 2 where the puzzle solving that kind of thing um yeah and and i I used to be a biased gamer like anyone else. who There were genres I wouldn't play. I refused. They were bad. I hated them because I'm an idiot, like most teenagers. But now as I've gotten older, like I've tried everything. And I would I can safely say there's something in every genre that I like, though I may not gravitate to some genres more than others. And you, you said previously that you have a show about Mass Effect. So why that particular franchise? <laughs> So that will actually lead it a little bit into my queerness, I would think, a little bit. Um, some subconscious and some conscious. But I think the, the main reason that that show exists is because of my incredible co-host, Frankie Bradley Lestrange. Um, we, 
we uh, we are best friends, uh, and we've been best friends for a long time. Uh, we dated a while back, and back when we were first together, the Mass Effect franchise was first coming out. It was huge, and we were both obsessed with it. We played it constantly. I must have done, by the time Mass Effect 3 came out, did like eight or nine playthroughs of the complete one and two. Um, I have not played three as many times for some obvious reasons for those who've been following the games. Um, but that said, you know, a few years back, sh she was like, I really want, think we should do a podcast about Mass Effect because like it's a game that I feel like has affected a lot of people in a way that other series hasn't. Um, turns out she was right and our listeners are incredible. But that said, this this I, this idea of playing this incredibly narrative game that built on building relationships and also saving the world and making choices that change the path of the rest of the games. It felt uh, it's important. It's an important series to me and it felt important to share my feelings on it. Um, it is also the first place I experimented with queerness, even if I wasn't super conscious about it. I believe I came out in high school, but like anyone living in 2020, Time is a lake, and I don't remember when anything happened anymore. <laughs> but that said, um, I definitely know that I wasn't, uh, even though I was out by high school, I wasn't as loud with my queerness as I am now as an adult. I'm not as, I wasn't as comfortable in my own skin. I didn't really know what that was like, right? Like, as we get older, we kind of figure out how to navigate that space. But the Mass Effect games allowed me to experiment with that. Like, I prefer Femme Shepard. I am I I know that I identify as he him and I know I'm a man, but I've always been softer than what was considered manly when I was growing up. And so like I liked the feminine side of things and I liked what was depicted as something only women would engage with or do when I was growing up. And so like playing Femme Shep felt powerful to me because she was she seemed to be portrayed softer a little bit sometimes but was still powerful, could still kick ass. And that like felt more relatable to me than uh, male shepherd growing up. Now, I, I don't think that matters as much because also I think I might have um, uh, implied some of the femininity on Femshep that might not have actually even been there. But that said, like, I romanced Liara as Femshep in my first playthrough. Um, you know, it wasn't until much later that I also explored other queer options in the later games as male shepherd. And like on our current playthrough of mass effect for the podcast, I have fallen for Kate and Alinko, a male character as my male shepherd based on me in a way that I had never before. I'd seen him in a way that I'd never seen him before because I am more aware of what I'm looking for in those places. Whereas, like I said, growing up, I it just was less aware of that stuff. And I think ultimately to make, this very long-winded answer to your question come to an end. I think it was just an, such an important series to me and I played it so much that I feel like it had to be that way for others. And of course it is. I mean, we look at Bioware now and while they've struggled with Anthem and some other things, they are a company that makes narratively driven games that bring people in. And um, with the Legendary Edition just around the corner as of when we're recording, it'll be out next year. Um I'm really excited to continue to explore that with that podcast and then see what that looks like as we go to other um, game series. The obvious answer would be Dragon Age for After Mass Effect, but we're still figuring that out. Um, but it's just something I think that meant, meant a lot to me, meant a lot to my co-host. And as we started doing the show, clearly meant a lot to a lot of other people who were hungry for more Mass Effect content 
which we weren't getting after we hadn't gotten much after Andromeda. And I think our podcast fills the void a little bit, which is also why folks have been so engaged with it. Cool. Cool. Um, you said that I want to go back to a little thing you said before um, about your, your queerness coming into play when it comes to uh, mass effect. So I wanted to ask how has, how has that been more broadly in your game playing? Oh, what a great question. Cause I don't know that I think about it as much as I probably should. I mean, the obvious answer is any game with a romance system. Like I'll think about who I want to romance, you know, obviously as a bisexual, um, I am into any and all things. Um, and I feel like this is something that my co-host yells about a lot, but um, romancing aliens in video games is allegory for queerness. Like it's you're romancing things that aren't who you are, you know, kind of a thing. And so, like, I feel like you should be able to sleep with anybody in Mass Effect, but that's a whole other story. Um, <laughs> I think that my, my queerness probably plays in the most, like I said, in games that have some kind of relationship that you can develop. But I think it's also played in my acceptance of gender within gaming. You know, there is a very sad statistic that shows the majority of games are white male protagonists. It's something like 90% of games or whatever the nonsense is. I mean, don't quote me on that, but I'm sure that's pretty close. Uh, and I think I sought out things outside the norm because of my queerness, because I was more aware of my own sexuality, my own gender identity and my own feelings in a way that, you know, manly straight men aren't. Um, uh, also, if you're a straight white man and you're mad that I'm poking fun, too bad. I think we'll just leave it at that. Um, <laughs> you, you, you get enough passes so you can deal with it. Um, but uh, I think... Because of all that, I was more in touch with that. And like, I never looked at playing as Lara Croft or playing as Samus or any of those things as like, oh, I'm a girl. I don't want to play as a girl. Like, that never mattered to me. And I think my queerness drove a lot of that, that, you know, gender and identity and sexuality didn't define why I had to play this game. I mean, also, like the logic that logic is so broken because like we play as Mario and Mario games, we play as Mega Man, who is is depicted masculine, but is genderless. He's a robot. We use he because he looks like a he, but he, I don't think Mega Man has a gender. That's actually something, I don't. I mean, I don't think he does. But, you know, again, it's, it's one of those things where, like, we accept these things in gaming just to be matter of fact. And I think my queerness um, really helped drive, keep me more open-minded as I played games, both growing up and even now. Yeah, I can I can definitely relate to that. Like, I I grew up in a very conservative house and with and was a uh, very closeted and repressed. Um, so therefore, I had all those very regressive views imprinted on me. And as I grew more comfortable with myself and get kept getting more and more out, I did. Um, started accepting more things and realizing that that there are people different than me and that like that's okay mm -hmm. and I can experience things outside my own 
outside my own experience. And, um, yeah. And I, I wanted to ask also, um, how do you feel bisexuality is represented in games currently? Uh, poorly. Um, I would say that most sexualities are represented poorly except for heteronormative. Um, I would say that, you know, I feel like until we can stop arguing over bisexuality and pansexuality being at odds, because they're not, they both exist and they don't mean the same thing, but you can be one or the other or both or whatever. Like, in, in, there's an, enough, I think, not necessarily internal conflict and queerness, but I think because s- these labels are, people want them to be very specific so they can define them. Um, it's going to be harder to see it in gaming. I mean, also it's just not as broadly accepted everywhere. Right. Um, I think that mass effect and dragon age and fable. And I think a couple of other games have really tried to do queer relationships. Well, and specifically bisexual relationships. Um, but I still don't get a sense of, like I still feel like there are a lot of lot lot further they can go. Now Dragon Age 2 and Inquisition specifically you, mostly anyone can sleep with anyone. There are canonically gay or lesbian characters, but for the most part a lot of the characters are pan or bi. Um even if it's not explicitly stated. Whereas in Mass Effect it's like you can't romance Caden until the third game. They closeted that man for two games and then they're like, oh, yeah, I guess he's queer in the third one where, you know, there was no reason for him to not be queer the whole way through. Um, who is also canonically bisexual because Caden can romance Fem Shep or Male Shep. But like, you know, but it's by the third game, there are a lot of options. There are canonically homosexual characters. There are canonical lesbian characters. There are, you know, there are canonical bisexual characters. But in the first two games, it's like you got you had one of like two options. And and in the first game, the only queer romance was Liara and Femme Shep. That was it. Um, and a lot of it was was, you know, kind of demoralized into ah, two girls are getting it on. Ah. You know, it even made the news at the time because people were freaking out. That there was sex in a video game. OK, Um <laughs> you know, parents getting bent out of shape because there's tasteful side boob in one shot. It's like, come on. Um, but our, the sexual repression of our country is a whole different other story <laughs> that I don't think we have time to get into. Um, but like, yeah, I think I think queerness, though better represented now than it was before, I feel like is still heavily underrepresented. I will say that it is definitely better represented in the indie space. I feel like a lot of, um, you know, uh, visual novel games and, you know, indie RPGs have had more of that in it. Um, but I think there's still a lot of, hey, look, we have a gay character. Isn't that great kind of nonsense where it's like you don't have to make a big deal about it. You could just have characters, preferences and sexuality be natural because queer people in real life don't go run around going, hey, I'm gay. Well, that's not true. I yell about things being gay or on the Internet all the time. So that's not necessarily true. But like I feel like 
games like makes a spectacle of it and it can just be the same as other things you know it could just exist it could just be there rather um i i think we can do better and my secret hope for the legendary edition of mass effect is that they will do better and they'll let you romance caden through all three games but i don't i as far as i can tell it's a graphical up uh facelift and not much more uh so i don't know that that's going to happen but a guy can dream yeah and you're not the first person i've heard say that honestly um and i I would hope that that gets put in as well um because yeah the industry needs to do better just in general yeah and for all the reasons you said yeah and i think like it is doing better like it's better than it was but it's not there yet we can always be better and do better i think which is something that the industry struggles with Yeah, yeah. Now, I want to talk about your other uh, link to gaming as far as your content, and that's your streaming. So tell me a little bit about your streaming. Sure. So um, I've been streaming for, I don't know, consistently I've been streaming for about a year or a year and a half. Um, I've had a Twitch account for probably since as long as you could have a Twitch account. Um, I started streaming maybe three or four years ago i tried to start um and i kind of i just couldn't get going i burned out on it um i put all this pressure on myself to perform in a way that i think just wasn't healthy um and then i went to magfest in january of 2018 i believe again time is a lake and who remembers anything and i went to this great panel um, for streamers that had a ton of really cool people on it, but the ones who um, resonated with me were um, Cypher of Tear, Tanya DePass, Urban Bohemian, um, and uh, Imperial. I don't use their two real names because I don't recall them off the top of my head because uh, oh, uh, Brian Gray and uh, what is Imperial's name? Anyway, I'm sorry, Imperial, if you're listening. Forgive me, please. Uh, but I saw them do a panel and uh, they talked about streaming and getting started and it's not a job. And even when you get paid from it, it's still not a job. And that, you know, you have to look at it a certain way and, you know, how they got involved and how they grew their audience. And like during the panel, I asked, like, what do you do if you don't want to stream? And Tanya gave me the most honest and obvious answer that just didn't occur to me. She's like, don't stream or stream and say, I don't feel like playing anything. Do you guys just want to hang out? Because if you have an audience, they're there for you, not the game. Some people may come through for the game, but for the most part, you're, if you have an audience of 50, 100, 300, 1,000 or more, like they're there to see you do something and will understand. Don't, it's not a job. Don't treat it like a job or you'll burn out. Treat it like something you want to do, like any of the other artistic endeavors that you take on. And that kind of like opened my third eye, I guess we can say. Like it made me see uh, streaming in a way that I just seems obvious now, but I didn't see it. And so I started streaming more, making a schedule, picking certain series to play through and uh, picked up momentum. And like, I think I started the end of last year, I got affiliate and got to 50. And now I'm at like just over 300. I think I'm at 312 followers, which for some folks doesn't seem like a lot. But for me is huge. Like in a year, that's an insane amount of growth to me. Because I came from a place where I wasn't even really enjoying doing it anymore. 
um, as far as my channel goes, you know, I stream kind of whatever I feel like streaming. I try and stick with the series and see it this way through to the end. And I've done events. I stream for Extra Life every year, which is a charity that raises money for children's hospitals where you stream and play games for 24 hours straight um, or until you collapse and raise money. And I raised over $1,000 this this past um, November, which is really cool. Um but, you know, I mostly play RPGs or action games. Um, I, of course, have played Mass Effect on stream. I play Dragon Age Inquisition on stream. Um, as of when we're recording, I'm going to dive into the Dragon... Uh, not Dragon Age. Um, the uh, Yakuza series on stream. Um, I've played Yakuza 0 and Kiwami 1 off stream. But I'm going to start Kiwami 2 and play it on stream because I've fallen in love with this series. And I just got three, four... Uh, Three, four, and five remastered in the collection they released on PS4. So I'm excited to play that. Um, but I think my stream, as far as what you might see on it, is just kind of me being me, being honest and kind of chatting, hanging out, talking about the game I'm playing, geeking out, being kind of goofy. I want to create a space where people feel comfortable to hang out and chat and, and, and just feel good. I want to provide, if I can, if my nonsense can provide even five minutes of entertainment for you in this trash fire of a year, hopefully 2021 will be better. Um, you know, uh, I think I've done my job. Um, and it's been really fun. You know, I still hit burnout like anybody else and I still don't stream on certain days or have to cancel because I don't feel up to it or I'm not feeling well. But I think that's like, that's with anything, right? Like I, I've learned over the last year, especially in 2020, you can't be afraid of that stuff. Like I've canceled po my own podcast recordings because I'm like, Hey guys, I just, I'm not feeling up to it tonight. Can we reschedule, you know, cause I think self care is important in a way this past year than it's been before that. And I understand it better in a way. Um, and streaming and trying to stick to that schedule and um, making friends in the streaming space has really helped me with that because I've met a ton of really incredible streamers who have helped guide me, like the three I mentioned before, Cypher of Tear, Urban Bohemian, and Imperial, but also the Opera Geek and uh, Space Valkyries and Wireless Riot and a bunch of other folks that I'm friends with that I've, I've either co-streamed with or just chatted with or hang out in their community Um I really love the streaming community and I think it comes from growing up playing games and watching games with other people like couch co-op was a thing that was prevalent growing up and that I loved and I think uh, but also single player games where you took turns or even where you just watch people like I could never play the Resident Evil games I was terrified of them but Resident Evil 2 I remember playing with my best friend Matt we would sit in his mom's living room with the lights off in the middle of the night playing the game and like Every time Mr. X came through a wall, we jumped 10 feet straight up. But because we were together, it made it fun, you know? That's very cool. And I I know that the streamers have to um, balance, like, having enter basically entertaining their viewers and providing an open, open and welcoming community for them. So how... How has the latter been working out for you? How, how, how challenging has it been to, to make your community as uh, welcoming and open as it is? Uh, I mean, honestly, really easy. I think mostly because at the core, I am a kind and giving person. And I think that translates really well to people I interact with. At least I'd like to hope it does. Um, but 
I am very, very, very blessed to have an incredible community who tunes into my streams. A lot of it is crossover from my podcast too. Um, I have incredible mods like I heard librarians and um, America online at AOL.com who also both stream. Um, but I'm very lucky to have a very warm community. I've, I can't think of any, uh, uh, moment where i've had issues you know every so often folks might say something or make a mistake but like for the most part everyone's very understanding willing to have a conversation and i've not had any moment knock on wood where i've had to like get loud with someone or kick them out or ban them um you know trolls exist and they'll come through and i've had my fair share of like banning those kinds of people but that's really quick and easy um, but I'm very lucky that my community is is very warm and understanding and welcoming of new people and, um, you know, very supportive. Um, yeah, that's it's been really great. Um, and it's not always that way. You know, the, there and also I know that I have a ton of privilege as a cis white man um, that I get a lot of leeway from folks that women and specifically black women I know on Twitch haven't gotten a lot of. And people are really shitty to some of the black streamers I know. Um, and, um, you know, pretty much anyone who's not cis and white. Uh, I've watched uh, trans streamers who I'm friends with go through the ringer. And that sucks. And it sucks with communities that way. And Twitch is trying to fix it, but not fast enough. Um, but I... I, because of my privilege that I recognize, have it probably a lot easier than a lot of other streamers, and I recognize that. Well, I want to. I want to quickly also shout out. You have. You have a. You are a DJ who has done a Fuser stream. So how has that been? <laughs> that was amazing. Um, Fuser. So I loved Guitar Hero when it came out. Uh, going back to when I mentioned earlier, I was a big music nerd and like being able to play songs because I can't play instruments, like amazing. And then when Rock Band came out, became obsessed with that. Um, I've spent thousands of dollars on Rock Band between DLC, the different games, replaced instruments, new instruments, specialty instruments. Like it's it, ridiculous, which none of it I have anymore because I don't have a 360 anymore. But when I found out Fuser was coming out, um, I was blindsided by Fuser. I didn't know it was coming out. Um, a lot of folks didn't. And I was at PAX East. I, as I said earlier, I had a panel there that you can actually hear on Reignite. It was a Bioware panel. Um, I walked onto the show floor and saw this giant DJ booth. And it, it like blew me away. And I was like, what is this? And then I found out, oh, my God, Harmonix is making a DJ game. Um, and I was lucky enough to get to meet some of the developers um, and try the game at the event, and it blew me away. Um, Harmonix, as always, is perfectly blends game mechanics with um, uh, musicianship, and it's amazing. Um, I had a blast DJing on uh, with Fuser on Twitch. I miss live events in a way that I didn't think I would, just because when I started DJing with Fuser. And like people, you know, asking for certain songs or reacting to the stuff I'm playing, like it felt good. I felt that, you know, rush of endorphins that you uh, feel doing a live event. And that's been really cool. But yeah, if you're a music fan of any kind uh, and really like mixing or, or dancing or dance parties, like Fuser is a game that, you know, is easy to learn and difficult to master and is a blast to play. Um, and I'm hoping to do more Fuser concerts uh, next year. Because uh, we are recording in 2020, um, in 2021. Um, but, you know, I'm also trying to stay consistent with my streams if I'm playing a series. But 
it's definitely Fuser's going to be my go-to. I don't feel like playing anything. I'm just going to play with some music for a while game, I think, because I'll just turn it on sometimes when I'm sitting at my computer, you know, with nothing else to do just to kind of like idly play with music. Uh, it's great. I love it. I highly recommend it. That's awesome to hear. <laughs> now, I want to wrap up, but before we do, I, wa- I want to ask if you want to plug anything specific before we go. Um, I mean, if you've gotten this far, you heard everything that I plugged at the beginning. There's a lot of it. Um, I think uh, if you want to follow me, go to DJ underscore Stormageddon on Twitter. But honestly, the best place to find everything that I'm working on and everything I'm doing from my streaming to my Patreon to my podcast to my merch store is go to DJStormageddon.com. Um, if everything is there that I do, um, you know, that's, I think, what I want to plug. I, I work on a lot of different stuff and I really love doing it and I'm trying to figure out always how to grow it. Um, but I think. Yeah, just check. go to djstormagain.com and whether you like podcasts or streaming or t-shirts or mugs or whatever, you know, I've got, I've got something for everybody. <laughs> well, that's awesome. And all you out there can find this show at uh, GamesQueerPod on Twitter. And you can find me at Jeremy underscore writes. And until next time, as always, stay queer. Stay queer.